0: Welcome back to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. This is episode number five, and it took place on February 13th, 2020. In it, we first listen to the lecture that R.C. Sproul gives on the covenant, and after his lecture is over, there'll be a about a 40, 45-minute discussion on the implications of that. Now, the Reformation Roundtable surrounds the idea that Lewis County needs a Reformed Church. Lewis County does not have a Reformed Church or anything really like a Reformed Church. We would love to see the glories of the Reformation in terms of distinct, robust, and unapologetic Reformed theology be brought to this area. We'd like to be used by God to make a church uh, happen, to plant a church, and to uh, bring it about. Um, We meet generally once a week on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. We'd love to have other people join us who are interested in Reformed theology. So with that, I hope you enjoy this discussion on the Covenant, the talk by R.C. Sproul, and the discussion that follows.
1: So we continue now with our study of the heart of Reformed theology. I want to turn our attention today to the concept of Covenant. One of the frequent nicknames that we will hear used to define Reformed theology is the term covenant theology. To be candid with you, I almost never use that designation, It's not that I'm opposed to it for any particular reason, it's just that I think it can be a little bit misleading because I think all Christians recognize that the concept of covenant is uh, obviously front and center in both Testaments. In fact, when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and we're all aware of the reality of covenant language that is sprinkled throughout the Scriptures. We hear about lots of covenants in the Old Testament, the covenant that God makes with Noah with the sign of the rainbow in the sky, and the covenant with Abraham with the sign of circumcision, and the covenant at Sinai with Moses. And we hear of Jeremiah speaking about a new covenant, and we know that in the upper room when our Lord is celebrating the Passover with His disciples the night before His execution, he institutes the new covenant and speaks of the new covenant that would be in His blood and so on. And so we have this uh, repeated motif of covenant in Scripture. But the reason why Reformed theology is often called covenantal is that because it sees the structure or format of covenant in the Bible as being a crucial element in which the whole plan of redemption works out and becomes kind of a key to understanding and interpreting the whole of Scripture. And because of that, Reformed theology stresses this central motif of covenant as the framework in which redemption is carried out. And again, in theological categories and in terms of historic confessions, The Reformed churches have a tendency to distinguish among three chief covenants. Uh, It's a general designation, but I want to take the time to look at these. The first is called the covenant of redemption, and the second is called the covenant of works and the third is called the covenant of grace, and what I want to do today is give a brief exposition of the distinctive characteristics of these three covenants. And normally we think of a covenant as an agreement between two or more parties. We have covenants in our own culture. In fact, the form of government that we have has been called historically a social contract or a social covenant that involves the consent of the governed, that there is an agreement between the government and the people and that there are certain stipulations that define that relationship that we look to in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. institutionalize and consecrate marriages today on the basis of covenants. Promises are made and uh, again, terms are agreed to and so on. And likewise, they have the reality of the business covenant or the industrial contracts which are in the news all the time. When labor and management are hammering out a new contract, what they're dealing with is. A covenant, an agreement that imposes uh, obligations on both parties and so on. Well, when we look at the biblical covenants, the first covenant that we uh, delineate is not a covenant that directly and immediately involves people. The covenant of redemption is a theological concept that refers to the harmony and unity of purpose that has agreed, that has, has been in existence from all eternity in terms of the mutual relationship and agreement of all three persons of the Trinity. It's that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all agreed from all eternity in terms of bringing forth the work of redemption. We distinguish among the persons of the Godhead in terms of the specific tasks that are performed by them in the outworking of redemption. We read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him would not perish, but have everlasting life." Now, the language of that text in John 3.16 is significant. We don't say, and the New Testament doesn't say, that Christ so loved the world that He persuaded the Father to forgive them of their sins. That is, the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son doesn't send the Father into the world. It is the Father who designs the plan of redemption and who initiates the work of redemption by sending His only begotten Son into the world to perform His redemptive work as our Savior and as our mediator. And uh, in the Nicene Creed in the fourth century, the Creed confesses that after Christ performs His redemptive work then and He ascends into heaven, then together the Father and the Son send the Holy Ghost into the world to apply the work of Christ to God's people. So the Father first sends the Son, and the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this can be misleading because we know that the atonement, for example, is ascribed to the Son, not to the Father or to the Holy Spirit. And we know that the process of sanctification is assigned to the work of the Holy Spirit, not to the Father or to the Son. However, it's not as if the Father and the Son are completely uninvolved in our sanctification. The whole of creation is a Trinitarian work and the whole of redemption is a trinitarian work the whole personal dimension of the godhead is involved in all of it but the point for uh, spelling out the covenant is redemption of covenant of redemption is to avoid the error that has occurred more than once in church history of thinking that the father and the son are at odds with each other and that the The son has to persuade this angry father to turn away his wrath from the son, as if it weren't God's gracious idea, God the Father's idea in the first place, or the idea that Christ is performing his work grudgingly. He comes to to Gethsemane and he prays to the Father, let this cup pass from me. but Then goes on to say what? Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done." And it's not as if the Son says, okay, if I have to do it, I'll do it, but what He's saying is if this is what pleases the Father, then it is my meat and drink to do the will of the Father. The whole point of the covenant of redemption is to show the complete unity and agreement in the Godhead itself from all eternity with respect to the plan of salvation. Now. When we get into the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, that does engender a little bit more controversy. But what is in view here is chiefly this. The covenant of works in Reformed theology refers to the initial covenant that God makes with man qua man, with Adam and Eve in paradise, where Adam is representing uh, not just himself and his wife, but his progeny, all people. He is Adam. He represents mankind. And God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a situation of probation. He makes promises of blessing to them in the event that they are obedient and promises of judgment upon them in the event that they are disobedient. and he puts them to the test, as it were, saying that if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, penalties are pronounced to the creatures in the event that they transgress the commandment of their Creator. Now, that means that the destiny of Adam and Eve and their progeny is determined by their response to the law of God, by their behavior, by their work, and hence it is called the covenant of works. God says if you do good works, you'll live. If you do bad works, you die. It's that simple. Now some people don't like the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace because they say, well, you know. God didn't even have to make a covenant at all with Adam and Eve. The very fact that He stooped to enter into a personal relationship with them and gave them the opportunity for eternal life of blessedness in His kingdom was itself gracious. And I don't think there's really any dispute about that. I mean, obviously God was not morally compelled to give a way of salvation at all to His creatures and we grant that even the covenant of works is rooted and grounded in God's eternally gracious character. But what is meant by the distinction is that initially the terms of the relationship with God is set up with respect to obedience or disobedience to His law. And what happened was that Adam and Eve disobeyed. They violated the covenant of works, bringing upon themselves and all whom they represented the judgment of God, because the covenant of creation had been violated. Now, let me just take a second to give a little parenthesis here. We understand that we live in a culture where there are all different kinds of competing religions and people who are secular and who have no time for religion at all, and they couldn't be less interested in the whole idea of covenant. And people say to me, well, are these people in God's covenant? And I said, well, the question is first, are these people people? And if we answer that question, yes, of course, these people are people, and then the next question is, well, when God made His covenant in creation, was it with a view to everybody in the world, or just with two isolated individuals that lived in a pretty garden in Eden? Now, the biblical idea is that the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve was a covenant with all of the human race. Now, people can deny that covenant. People can repudiate that covenant, people can despise that covenant, but what they can't do is get rid of it. They can't annul it. And one of the reasons why the Scriptures brings all of us before the judgment seat of God and pronounces us guilty before God is that all of us have broken His law. All of us have done bad works. All of us have failed to keep the original covenant of creation. All of us have failed to perform what every creature's duty is to perform, to glorify God, to honor Him as God, to be grateful to Him, and to obey His law. So the bottom line is that the whole world is populated by covenant breakers. Christ is sent into a world that is already guilty before the Father for breaking the Father's law, for violating the very terms of human existence, the very basis for human life as we were created before God. And so that's what is meant when we talk about the covenant of works. Now, it is because the first Adam failed in the covenant of works, and God would have had every moral right on that occasion to do exactly what the terms of the covenant promised. He could have destroyed them and the whole race, and that would have been it. But instead He condescended to cover their nakedness and to promise them redemption through one who would act as their Savior, and so that God then at that point institutes the covenant of grace, which is given to Abraham, which is given to Moses, which is given throughout the Old Testament, the promise that God would redeem His people who were guilty according to the covenant of works that he would save his people through another way. Now that's a critical thing because there are professing Christians today who believe that there is a fundamental difference between how God saved people in the Old Testament and how people are saved now or after the New Testament. That despite Paul's laboring the point in the third, fourth, and fifth chapters of Romans using Abraham as his illustration, that salvation was accomplished in the Old Testament by grace, just as it is in the New Testament, and that Abraham was justified not by the works of the law but by faith in, in the promised Messiah. The difference is the difference between promise and fulfillment. The people in the Old Testament look to the future promised Redeemer put their trust in Him, and they were justified by faith in Him. We look backward to the work that has been accomplished by the Savior. We put our trust in Him, and salvation is basically the same now as it was then. What's different is we have a much deeper understanding of the particulars and the details of it, and what is even more different is that it is a fait accompli, that the work of Christ has been already performed on the plane of history. But once a person breaks the covenant of works, the only way he can possibly be restored to fellowship with God is by God's mercy, not by His justice, by His grace, not by our works. And this is crucial because we live in a day where people still entertain the idea that they can be saved in the presence of God by their own works that they can still merit their way into the kingdom. We don't really believe that we are debtors who can't pay our debts. We forget that the terms of the covenant of works were pretty stiff. They demand perfection. And if you sin once, there's nothing you can do to make up for that. Because once that blemish comes next to your name, what do you have to do to become perfect again? You can't become perfect again, because perfection doesn't allow for the slightest blemish. But of course when we come before God, we come with a lot more than a slight blemish. We come with a a, a radical kind of pollution before Him. And so this distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is really designed to shed clear light on the nature of the gospel. Now I'm going to say something that's probably going to confuse everybody. We've been talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone and it's only by grace that we're saved and so on. Now I'm going to say something that maybe you're going to choke on. In the final analysis, the only way any person is ever justified before God is by works. We are saved by works, and we are saved by works alone. Don't touch that (laughs) dowel. Let me explain this, please. When I say the only way we are saved by works is this, that the covenant of grace must be distinguished from the covenant of works but never separated from it. The covenant of grace is God's covenant that He institutes to ensure that the original covenant is finally kept. And when I say we are justified by works and by works alone, what do I mean by that? I mean that the grounds of my justification and the grounds of your justification are the perfect works of Jesus Christ. We're saved by works, but they're not our own. That's why we say we're saved by faith and we're saved by grace, because the works that save us aren't our works, they're somebody else. Uh, somebody else's work, who submitted himself at every point to the covenant of works. The New Testament describes Jesus as the new Adam. He is the new humanity who accomplishes what Adam failed to accomplish. By one man's disobedience the world is plunged into ruin, and by the other man's obedience to the law of God in all of its demands and in perfect conformity, Christ redeems His people by winning the blessings promised that God had promised to His original creatures in their behalf. Now I'm saved by grace insofar as the work that saves me is not my own. I'm saved by works in the sense that the basis of my salvation is on the works of the perfect worker, the one who from all eternity was willing to assume the burden of God's creatures and was willing to come to this world to submit himself to the terms of the original covenant of works and to fulfill it by his perfect obedience, and that God gives to His people all of the benefits of that work so that He gives to us all that Christ has earned and all that He is becomes ours when we place our trust in Him. That's what we mean by the covenant of grace. It's not like the covenant of works is the Old Testament and the covenant of grace is the New Testament. No, the covenant of grace is working ever since the third chapter of Genesis, friends, all through the Old Testament and into the New because it is based upon God's free grace to needy sinners.
0: That was good. The, I've heard the covenant of works discussed quite a bit. Or I mean, alluded to, but that was, that was helpful to, to have him kind of give the explanation that the covenant of works has been going on ever since it was instituted, and that that was really the work of Christ. And then, actually, I just put a the last note I wrote down there was that it makes a lot of the things that Jesus says about obedience make a lot more sense because Jesus was very big on obedience. He was not a he was not an easy believism guy. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and you need to be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect, and you know all these very tall orders. But all uh, all we can accomplish those through Him and through His work. And that makes that makes a lot of sense if he is if he is working to accomplish the covenant works that was
2: set up with the first Adam. Yeah, if somebody would have asked me like why are the why would what would be the point of um, separating out the covenant works and the covenant of grace? I mean, I don't I don't know. <laughs> Not exactly sure. Yeah, you know, somebody would ask you offhand, but the way that he breaks it down, that makes yeah makes more sense.
3: Yeah, I think um, I have a, a knee-jerk, knee-jerk reaction it probably would have been a covenant of works would have been for our own sanctification rather than our salvation.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? Like, that would have been my, like, why do we have a covenant of works? <clears throat> to have a vehicle to glorify God and increase in holiness, but not for our own salvation, because we wouldn't be able to keep it fully. So we're the unfaithful one in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? But... Yeah. It's interesting when you think about, you know, God puts Adam in the garden <clears throat> and basically gives him, a, you know, 10,000 yeses and only one no. You know, you need, he basically says all of these trees will be good for you to eat from, which seems to imply that the good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will one day be good for him to eat from as well. But right now, you may not eat from this one tree. Everything else you can't eat from. But this one, you can't because when you eat from the tree of wisdom, which is the knowledge of good and evil, that's what that's how wisdom is defined. So when you eat from the tree of wisdom, you will die if you do it. I, I think that it's implied that if you do it before I allow you to, before you grow in maturity to the point where you can be given it. Um, and as a covenant goes, it's hard to describe that as anything but a covenant of works outside of the fact that, you know, it was... Grace in in the sense that everything that was around Adam, including the air in his lungs and, you know, the food that he was eating, it was all a gift. (laughs) So in, in a lot of ways, that really was grace, too. But there was like there was one bit of obedience that he had to follow.
2: And that was the one the one thing he didn't do. Um, I think it's interesting to at least when we're talking about covenant and covenant theology, maybe at least talk about, you know, he, he expressed the term and and explained a little bit about, okay, how what does that mean when you mm-hmm. hear it, but what does covenant theology mean to us? You know, when you hear that, what does it mean? And I think it's worth maybe talking about that a little bit. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> or do you have an idea or anything outside of beyond what Archie's talked about tonight you know because terminology
4: I kind of hate to read all of this because it's kind of long but Galatians 3 is really the sum of I feel like Romans like Paul goes deep into Romans and almost summarizes it for the Galatians hmm. um, yeah read it yeah I'll read I'll read some of it oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now then, that it is those of faith who, who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So then, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. It kind of continues on, but that's the, that's the crux of the covenant, right? Is that God institutes this with us. We're lawbreakers. We're covenant breakers the only way to fulfill the original covenant is for a perfect man to come and actually (laughs) do completion, And so that's why, you know, I love how he says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Like, Mm -hmm. Abraham had the
0: gospel of redemption in his mind. Like, I mean, it's... Yeah. I have Abraham, Moses, Noah, (laughs) Joseph, etc. were all Christians. Mm -hmm. They were all, they really, they were all Christians because they trusted in Christ. Mm -hmm. Even though... Their faith in Christ was not Their faith was in Messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all they do. They didn't know his name would be Jesus, but they did know that his, that he was he would be the one to save his people from their sins. And while you're in Galatians, I mean, the end of Galatians, where it says. <clears throat> Um, it says, But uh, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all under the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Why that matters when I think about covenant theology so much is because... Uh, The Old Testament is our history. We went through the Red Sea. We wandered in the desert for 40 years. Mm -hmm. We shouted and trusted God to knock down the the walls of Jerusalem, of uh, Jericho. We were unfaithful and didn't obey. We did these things, and God continually renewed his covenant with us. And when we see the promises of God throughout Scripture, those are our promises when we see his promises in whatever they might be, they are not to some specific small group of people that lives on the other side of the world. They're to us. And they are available for that small group of people that lives on the other side of the world if they trust in Christ. But that this book belongs to Christians and the promises therein belong to Christians. When I think of covenant theology, which of course he didn't talk about at all, that's what I think of. That's what it means
2: to me. Yeah, just where he touched, I guess, just slightly on the framework, how maybe the terminology of covenant theology is, is the framework mm-hmm. around which we understand the whole Right, Bible. that's true. Yeah, he did say that. And so I think that just that one, I mean, that's oversimplified, but just to, to view it as that, in that, you know, we understand the whole of the Bible fits as a puzzle and all the pieces to the puzzle are part of it, and we are all part of it. You know, they all affect. You take one piece out, and all of a sudden, now you you you've broken the framework, mm-hmm. and God's redemptive story is is missing something at that point. Right. You, know, you can't just take pieces of it and then apply it to your life. You need the whole thing. Yeah. And you need to apply the whole thing. Yeah. Same same idea, I guess. Um, you know, and that yes, those covenants are with us. They're not with. Know, other people maybe, right. and they're fulfilled throughout time. So um, more more of the idea that you know this this is a this idea in this this book, this is a story that fits perfectly mm-hmm. with us in God's will and in the whole of it.
4: Yeah. yeah and he mentions, you know, Genesis three, it's been in effect from the beginning. Like when I explained to my kids that it, you know God's always been in the business of redemption. And it started with the first man and woman who break. I mean, they had one rule, right? I mean, one law. It wasn't even really a law. It was like, just just dumb. <laughs> like, they couldn't handle it, right? And it, it, but to become aware of their nakedness and become ashamed and become afraid and hide themselves away from God and then God comes and seeks them out. They didn't come to God and say, hey, we're sorry, like, we blew it. They were hiding in fear. And he goes, what happened? Like, come back. Then he goes further to sacrifice an innocent animal, which they've never seen death. So here's an innocent life spilled blood before them. Now you have a like a, a covenant of a law, right? A law was broke, something had to give its life. Now you're now you're clothed with this dead body. I mean, like it's kind of mortifying if you think about like these guys were naked and unashamed and completely in bliss, and then all of a sudden they see death and they're wearing a covering now that's from a life that is no more, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's like he's always had redemption, and I like how he tied that into the Father Son Spirit. They've always been in the business of redeeming,
2: even before, you know. We. Do you think he tanned the goat skin immediately? <laughs> <for> <laughs> he slapped it on there, man. <laughs> it was a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> the last one. That's why, why they that the best unsuccessful.
0: <laughs> Ron, how about you? What do you, when you think of covenant, did RC pretty much sum it up or feel like you left any key things unsaid? Well, I think he left a lot instead, but not that I'm qualified yeah. to judge that particularly. Uh, what strikes me is what Luke said about the, the puzzle aspect and the act of men who reject salvation through Jesus Christ that God has presented to us have broken that puzzle. And unless they repent of that, mm. there's nothing they can do. Yeah. The amazing thing is that God cared enough mm. to prepare beforehand that covenant. Yeah. And all of the details that go into that. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense when you think about the covenant of works. Because my kids will ask me, like, what kid hasn't asked their parents? Why did God ever allow us to sin? Mm-hmm. Which is it's a great question. <laughs> it's, it's one that I can't necessarily answer. But, but it makes more sense when you think about the fact that the covenant of works is still in effect. It's, it's, it's like he created this covenant to, as a way of, of interacting with men, as a way of condescending and, to our level, interacting with us and having that relationship with us. And, you know, when I think of a covenant, I think of an agreement between God and man with blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. That's, that's how it's been oftentimes explained to me. And so it's without him, without God interacting with us and covenanting with us in that way, there is no relationship. And so that that relationship necessarily, it had to be different than his relationship with the angels because the angels, for, for what we know about them, they... They, they don't, they're not made in his image and he has a different relationship with them than he does with us and so the way he's chosen to interact with us is through covenants and covenants require obedience somebody's obedience <laughs> just like the covenant of grace required Christ's obedience okay. um, which is why our response to that covenant of grace is our love is to show we show him our love by obeying Obe- obeying his laws
3: That um, was talking about the, um, which I had not heard the um, covenant of redemption before. So this is almost like a, this is almost like looking back at God's covenant with, I guess God's covenant with Himself and the redemptive plan. This is the way that I took what he was what he was saying there. I think one of the key things on that is that. Um, Trinitarian theology is really important in that you can't you can't have a modalism yeah. in that right, which is a, something that in Pentecostal oneness theology that's a that's a that's problematic modalism modalism has been problematic throughout Christianity historically I think.
0: And just how would you define modalism? Modalism is
3: basically God is one, but he reveals himself in in constituent parts, depending on how he works. Right. So if, you, you know, it isn't God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. It's God who is revealed as the father, who's revealed as the son, who's revealed as the Holy Spirit. And the thing about that is that there isn't a relationship element within God in that God is in oneness theology. It's just, OK, God is the Son, God the Father, God the Son simultaneously, it's not, so there isn't a, there isn't an obedience and so, God punished it,
0: himself while he was on the cross kind of thing yeah, yeah, it's a, there's, there's a lot
3: of uh, I mean, trying to understand the Trinity is obviously I mean, it's one of the, it's a great mystery but there's some additional g- mental gymnastics one has to do <laughs> with modalism and I think that those other things, which I, I had not really made a connection to this, is that the covenant of works being fulfilled by Christ sort of precludes that there was a relationship that had to exist beforehand because they had, in order for it to be a covenant of works, he had to become subservient to the Father, he had to submit to the Father in that. And God, the Father, could not submit to himself, right? I mean, anyway, I don't know. There, there's, I, I'm kind of mentally, I'm, I'm verbally processing this as I thing, but I, I had not really heard the, I had not heard that before. I had heard, you know, an explanation of talking about it, the Trinity mm-hmm. there, that relationship, but having it labeled as like uh, the theology of redemption mm-hmm. or the covenant of redemption, excuse me, yeah. that, the redemptive covenant. I had not. And it's interesting too. I mean, because that, that God making a promise within himself, <laughs> like uh, talking about the faithfulness of God versus the unfaithfulness of man. God has always been faithful to that promise to himself too, and we see that revealed in there, so I don't know, I'm battling, but <laughs> yeah, but, no, but I hadn't. I, I don't know if you guys ever heard
2: that before, the covenant of redemp or redemptive covenant, I don't I've heard of it, yeah, I've heard him describe, I guess, the term um, and I guess I haven't heard of, you know, the idea of modalism. Oh, okay Yeah, modalism's an old
4: I think they, they debated that in one of the councils back yeah.
2: in the
3: day
4: and it, yeah Gymnastics. If you want to learn like more, it. you can just
3: head down
0: the down the road here. <laughs> <Petacosta> <laughs> the, uh,
2: yeah.
0: yeah, it's like they it's when you like try to describe God as like water, he's gas, liquid, and ice. You know, that's mm-hmm. like or you know, God is the Trinity is like an egg, it's the yolk, it's the white, and it's the shell. It's like that's that's essentially a, a modalistic way of
2: describing God because, yeah. because I, he I immediately struggle with that, you know, because it's like, well, then how can Christ submit to the Father and to go to the yeah, 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 you,
0: you have no problems. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. but you can be okay with just right from the beginning. Let us, beginning, yeah. let us. in our own image. Or in Matthew, where it's Father talking yeah. from heaven to Son,
4: right? With the Spirit, Does right? I mean, ter- I mean, it's there's the Trinity. Yeah, it's that's amazing. Yeah. But like I've I've heard this explained. Uh, where you were just talking about us in in Genesis, where Mm -hmm. it's let us, you know, the this unified God that's more than one. It's a plural in the in the Hebrew. And the word the word for God is plural all throughout. You know, and it's like it's just interesting Mm -hmm. because like we didn't hear living in Utah refined my theology on Trinitarianism because it's oh I imagine (laughs) talk about some good topics yeah discussion because there was so much challenge in that culture of well prove that to me how do you explain this how do you why do you believe this and really what helps in those situations is to look how especially Paul writes he's always writing in three the father the son the spirit father son spirit he he does that throughout all of his letters consistently and 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 then you go to the visual markers, like in Matthew, where he sees it, you know, he hears the Father, he sees the Son, he sees the Spirit descending like a dove. So it's it's those things, though, that once you know, as Christians, I think we take for granted, because it's just, yeah, I believe that. But then, you know, when you hear, like, oh, historically, the Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, and you're like, yeah, you're right, it doesn't. You know, that word wasn't around for yeah. hundreds of years until it was debated, yeah. and then refined, and then, yeah. You know, yeah, well, I guess out of that, my, I guess my, my takeaway from it, though, was I, I had not really thought about the,
3: the internal relationship that God shares with himself containing a promise, mm-hmm. the promise of redemption. I mean, because that, mm-hmm. that, that, that promise outside of time to then be infused in a historic context mm-hmm. in a specific way, planned, before all, before the foundation of the world, yeah. this is the promise that we're making. Mm-hmm. This is the promise mm-hmm. I'm making, you know, and like that's, that, that's a, that's a, that's a transcendent
0: promise, which is interesting. I, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, like, the the, the, the passage like he brought up with John 3.16 make more sense within that context though of, of God so loving the world. Not maybe as we oftentimes will apply it where, you know, God loved you so much that he mm-hmm. sent Jesus to die for you. Well, that's totally true. In, in, the, in the larger sense, it's like, you know, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking about, I think, that idea of that, that covenant of redemption. Like, Jesus has come to save the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that, does that mean every individual gets saved? No, of course not. And up until now, you know, the, the, the road seems pretty wide that leads to destruction, <laughs> Contin, yeah. continues to be. But Jesus has come to rescue the world, and nothing. And he won't be satisfied with anything less than the entire world. And, and I think that makes sense within, within the idea of planning out the creation of the world and having this internal idea of redemption, redemption. Yeah, that would be ultimate redemption coming.
4: Well and even before, like you mentioned, before the foundation of the world, before, you know, Satan and the angels even fell, this is already This, was already pomp. Already pomp. Yeah, no, this was is already a great of Yeah, this <laughs> is already done. Yeah.
2: Your son, your spirit. This is, yeah. this this is, is how it's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> we're
3: uh by the way, living in Utah, Galatians uh, that first chapter must have been uh, like your favorite part of the whole Bible. <laughs> There's a lot of favorite parts. Yeah, I was gonna say living in Utah. Though, I mean, that one kind of just like yeah. Smack,
0: smack. Well, it's only as accurate as it's properly translated. That is a <laughs> yeah, There are issues with that too. But... That was my favorite. Are you right? That was like yes. So which part? Yeah. <laughs> like which ones do you pick and choose from? So, yeah. How do you know? But it is interesting, you know, as you look at, as you think about, like, modern-day Jews, mm-hmm. when you think about modern-day Jews, those who are actually, like, Orthodox or, um, you know, following, following after, trying to follow the Torah and things like that, is, is there essentially, they have a lot more in common with, like, Islam than they do with Christianity because they're, they're rigidly monotheistic. They don't, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. That's, you know, that's... That's their life verse, <laughs> mm-hmm. and but they but we I mean as Christians we can see that we know that when we hear the Lord our God is one we don't think of him as being an individual although we do think that there is one God in three persons but the the Jews at least the Jews of today if they if they are rege- the Jews of today are rejecting Messiah so they have they share more in common with you know uh, you know like the pagan pagans of Islam or the pag you know in the in the idea of that strict monotheism from excluding all else, excluding any inter um, inter Godhead relationship that the Trinity provides, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where we'll go with that, but um, well, I,
3: yeah. Oh, I was to say. I mean, I think when it comes to I, I think when it comes to the the Trinity, though, it's it's one of those things you have to be super careful of that you are. You are recognizing the singularity of God in that it, it, there is a relationship because you're you're worshiping one God. Yeah. There there it is still one God. It is and that's where again this idea of modalism becomes problematic, right? Because it's that, that's the that's sort of the easy answer. I was like, oh, well, yeah, it is still one God, right? And so you can kind of try and wrap your human brain around it by just saying that this is just him in different forms, right? But, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree, though, that when it comes to... I find I find it interesting when Christians struggle to talk about the historical roots of our faith being in... Judaism and wanting to give that a pass like somehow there's a special salvation that's going to happen for the Jews that's outside of Jesus mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that promise was fulfilled in Christ <laughs> so your salvation there's one mediator between you and God that is it and so it is It is problematic when you're rejecting that you're rejecting that gift but still share a common ancestry like it's like okay well historically I mean these people are these people are more ethnically connected (laughs) to the scripture than I will ever be Mm -hmm. right I, I am I'm adopted into I'm adopted into God's family but as far as like an ethnic group mm. that was chosen to be a demonstration. I'm not part of that. <laughs> like, and
0: yet, yet, so But, but of, that ethnic group is now no different than the Chinese. Oh no, or right, or right, right, or right, right the yeah. Irish or anything like that. But I like, do. Yeah. I
3: still think that there, are, there's a large, there's a large portion of Christians that really struggle with um, delivering that truth. Obviously, you deliver that truth with graciousness, and you, you know, you, you know, the offer of salvation is to all people, but. I mean, I I, I think I've even I don't know. I mean, I, I I've heard I've heard people that are more renowned Christians and make comments about um, about Judaism as if it's something better than Islam. Mm. Oh right, right. Like somehow there's a it's a, it's a it's a, it's a because it has its roots in, in because Christianity has its roots oh, yeah, in that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's better than
0: than that but well, and you're maybe you're referring back to what I was saying there, they large they share more in common with Islam in their strict monotheism mm-hmm. than than we do and, and and I would rather live under God's law than the Quran. oh <laughs> in the of the week so yeah if, if you had if you had uh, if you had Jews patiently waiting the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Before Christ came, that's different that though. Would. That's a, that's a Christian, right? Exactly. That's a Christian. Exactly. So so, but that but that group now mm-hmm. are are rejecting Jesus, and so in terms of you know which one you want to live under, that that might be a different. I mean, it might be a totally different discussion. Sure, but ultimately, pragmatically, pragmatically, I mean, you want to live under God's law, right?
3: Exactly. But if you're you're not going to be saved by it, right? Right. That's the, that's the conundrum.
2: Yeah, I think um, yeah. There, if you were to ask the Christian population at large of uh, professing Christians anyway, um, you know if there mm. was if the Jews were saved, you know or if there was a difference between Old Testament you know Jews and Christians today, a lot of them would say, oh yeah yeah you know mm. there's a difference they're they're saved by their works because they were saved by the law they were saved by the Old mm. Testament I think there's a large population out there who mm. just mm. ignorantly don't know right that's what they believe because right. that's kind of a, a, a culture knowledge thing. Um, whereas I think what you're getting at is just like, yeah, you know, actually they're the same as us. That that yeah. point that no we are saved the same. There isn't a b <laughs> there isn't a difference. Right. They didn't meet the law and yeah. uh, no one ever has except you know, one person. Right. And then we're all saved the same way. So I think that's that distinction is very important. I think it's very much overlooked in a lot of a lot of the, the larger Christian circles. Yeah,
4: man. I think. I mean, like, positionally, and I know we're talking about covenants. So, the like, covenant God made with way to bring us back around there, with, with their job. Let's get back to covenant. The so, <laughs> so, Abraham had the covenant, right? And then Isaac. So his firstborn was Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Ishmael is really the grandfather of Islam. Oh, yeah, and then mm-hmm. that seed is split between Abraham, right? Isaac, Ishmael. So, if you follow that covenant all the way through, like Romans 11, Paul expounds on that. So, positionally, like, if you were to compare Israel versus, or Jews versus Islam, like we're kind of discussing, yes, they're both opposed. And and Paul even says that, right? Like, he says in 11... 28, as regards the gospel, they, he's talking about Israel, are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And it, and he goes into being, you know, like the remnant of Israel, the Gentiles grafted into their, their mm-hmm. tree, right? And as God has the power to graft us in, and he has the power to cut limbs off of that tree, he has power to cut us out and put those limbs back in as he wishes, is what Paul talks about. And then he goes into the mystery of Israel's salvation, that at the fulfillment of the Gentiles fulfilling, you know, like, you know, the last Gentile mm-hmm. is saved. Now the mystery of Israel is saved. Like it's, and it's all the work of God, right? Like it's not the works like he talked about. The covenant of works is all done by Christ. Not, mm-hmm. it's not Israel following the law. It's not mm-hmm. us being zealots. It's not
0: us being obedient even. It's Christ's work done. Like It's kind of like when he says there's no, there's no male or female <clears throat> There is male and female, but mm-hmm. there is no preference for males or females as far as the gospel is concerned. There's no mm-hmm. Jew or Greek. There's no preference for either group, but they still exist. And so the, so the call of the gospel goes to the Jews in the same way it goes to the Chinese or mm-hmm. to us, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. It's when Israel, whoever that is now, however they genetically define themselves, mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand how... You know, two thousand years later, there's you know what what constitutes a distinct Jewish person if it's just like a small percentage or if they if they're able to trace well it and more and than that. But
4: what's interesting about Israel is you know like because when you look at the tribes, right? Jews come from Judah, right? And they were taken in the captivity in Babylon, whereas Israel was divorced by God, right? So like the other tribes tribes. yeah yeah Yeah, the other tribes the lost tribes right were issued a certificate of divorce and if you read about that in the old testament god's like i will bring them back to me i will like i will redeem this this is my covenant with them i'll bring them back and it's like that's like crazy like think of it. but yeah i mean those those 10 tribes are like gone right i mean it's like where'd they go and they're i don't know I mean that's why yeah. in Utah that's why it's so big to know what tribe you come from mm. that's why that's why heritage baptism for the dead like all of those things are rooted in that culture is because they want to make sure that they get their whole tribe like mm. accounted for it. Mm. so yeah by their own power yes by work by work they do <laughs> right.
0: yeah yes It was the last name Smith you're that much closer to God I'm in
2: yeah
0: And like Smith
2: Next time, They're totally private.
3: Yeah, I'd be curious to see how many people like <clears throat> a, a, after hearing something like like what was said here, because the these first several, which I caught up with, I don't feel like these were necessarily highly distinct in terms of their denominational impact. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know too many people, maybe people would be ignorant of this, what was just, or don't have a term <clears throat> tied to it, like I never had, until, until watching this, I never had uh, redemption covenant, or the covenant of redemption, I've never had that in my vocabulary, so I get that little tool in my toolbox, but I think most people having listed this, I don't think that there would be
0: something they would go, oh, God made promises, and he was faithful to those promises. I think the argument might be in the idea that um, we're saved by the works of Jesus following the law. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard, argue, I've heard people argue against that idea that Jesus followed the law, and that's how he was counted righteous. I'm not that's saying I agree true. with it, but I, but I know okay. I've heard that argument. That he did not follow the law? Not that he didn't follow the law, but that it wasn't by his following of the law that we are counted righteous. It, it, um. his, his following the law of God did not have any bearing on our righteousness. It was just the fact that he never that it was he never without sin. Because he was without sin, which I suppose you could just say is another eternal following God's yeah. law. law. Um, yeah, how do you how do
3: you be without sin and not
4: follow God's law? Well and and Paul said straight up like he came to fulfill
0: the law and the prophets. So. right yeah. you know, yeah. You know the but if you think about Adam I and Eve are cast out of the garden and they bear Cain and then they bear uh, Abel and then Cain raises up and kills Abel was there a law against murder? No, not explicit at least not that we're told about. But it was some something was broken right. There was right. some. It was obviously obviously what happened was wickedness and sin. And so I think maybe the argument goes that there is the the given Torah that applies to, this is a dispensational argument, but there's the given Torah that's given to the, pe- the Jews proper. And then we're outside that, and, and we have like this kind of innate natural law inside of us that knows it's wrong to kill, and it knows, knows that it's wrong to steal. Mm-hmm. And that that is the law of, like the Gentiles do the law that is the law unto themselves. I, I just think that that's an argument that I've encountered, because I agree with you, this seems this seems you know kind of like horse sense Simple, like yeah, that totally makes sense. But I think that when you start mixing in the idea that there is a distinctive covenant for Jewish people, mm-hmm. and then there's a distinctive covenant for Gentiles, and there's these kind of not two paths of salvation because I don't want to I don't want to disparage anybody that would believe that or would be, teach a dispensational uh, gospel. But there's kind of like there's plan A and plan B, kind of like both are grace, but you, you know it's it it gets it gets confusing. I think I'm, you can disparage that. That's okay. I think you can disparage. I <laughs> don't <that. laughs> oh, no, particularly wrong with that. <laughs> no, I, I mean I, didn't, I don't want to put words into somebody's mouth oh, it, that, they, that they don't that okay. they don't actually mean. But it's it's kind of like there are two there are two paths. Basically, there's God there's God saving the people of Israel proper, and then there's what he's doing with his people. Yeah, evangelical questions and, and I, I think kind of. I think there I think there
3: are two paths. I just think that they're, the one is an absolute impossibility. Mm-hmm. Right? if if one of us were to have kept God's law perfectly, then we would be without sin.
1: Mm-hmm. So God
3: does I mean, technically that path exists for one man. Right. But we have a, we have a uh, a so you have to keep the law
4: perfectly and your father can't be human. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well yeah. but like I mean if you think about it the first law Like of the Ten Commandments, love God, love God, right? I mean, if you love God perfectly like Jesus did, it fulfills the rest, right? You're not going to steal, you're not going to murder, you're not going to commit adultery or, you know, idolatry. You're not going to do any of that stuff because you perfectly love. And that's where, like, Christ, I mean, if you think about it, really broke some of the man-made laws that were appended to God's law after the fact. Like healing on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, eating on the Sabbath, not (laughs) ceremoniously washing on the Sabbath. I mean, he did a lot of things that the religious elite at the time were like, what are you doing? Like, we might need to kill you for this. You know? Like, yeah, I mean, so he was, you know, he hung out with people that the the law keepers of the time would like stay well away from, right? I mean, so I, I think, I think him loving perfectly fulfills the law perfectly. You know what I mean? Like, there's no—if he doesn't sin, that means he doesn't have any selfishness. He has no rebellion. He has no disobedience. Perfect.
0: Like something we can't fathom. But. Yeah. Still, though, keeping the law was <clears throat> meant doing certain things and not doing other things. So your heart can love God, but if you're not doing the things that He told, tells you to do, then yeah. your actions aren't showing that. And in order to, for your actions to show that, then you have to know what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that implies that a law has been given to you. And, and the idea that the law is just written on your heart, in terms of like a, a moral law that you, that you just, is kind of innate in you, is, I can, I can definitely see some argument for that in the idea that we, we all have some level of conscience uh, you know whether we 're Christian or not but um, but the law of God is ex- is explicit and it 's something that we need to know in order to obey uh, and so while I, I agree loving God is the first commandment, simply loving God in ignorance is not the same thing is not fulfilling the law or it's not obeying the law if that that makes sense i 'm not sure if that's what you were saying or not but um, loving God is a prerequisite to fulfilling the rest.
4: but Yeah, and I, I see where you're going, and I think, like, later when he gets into that, like, with, with our sin nature, right? We're now born in original sin. You know, original sin has been throughout all of creation. We are now affected by that. And when we... I mean, like, you look at Romans 1, right? Like, the people who were, you know, the, the question of, like, well, does God save people on an island? And it's like, well can sure but like you know they never heard the gospel but they're in themselves guilty because by our nature we're going to worship the sun not the creation or yeah. the creation rather than the creator right we're going to make idols out of wood and bow down to those things just because that's how we're bent right? right that's how we that's how we are broken now yeah but yeah i'm i'm with you like most of what was said today wasn't like this you know her shattering like wow Hugely. Yeah, but I think next week T for you know Total Gravity will be yeah. Yeah that one that one that one will ruffle the actually. That one,
3: uh not this brother in law, but the other brother in law <laughs> thought that I might be heading to hell because <laughs> I had some her- heretical thoughts and I was like, I, I assume okay. he doesn't have
0: any children. He does. He <laughs> does actually Usually having so.
3: children cures you of nothing in total gravity. <laughs> yeah, then. no, it was it's kinda of, it, it was kinda of, kind of surprising, actually. Uh, what I think we had some, yeah, we had we had a conversation where it was something to the effect of, well, you and I both coming from over the phone here, him him speaking. Well, you and I both, you know, we, we sort of believe that all people are good. And I was like, <laughs> 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 just sat in radio silence for a little bit. Like, basically good. Baked it, yeah, basically good. Right. <laughs> basically I was like, good. Yeah, actually, those might have been the exact more of the exact, <laughs> <laughs> exact words. That, like. Mm-hmm. I, 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 let, I just kind of let that one ride out because I knew that the phone conversation had to be a little more prompt <laughs> yeah.
4: but I was like oh. I had a, a co-worker who was Hindu and we were discussing total bread. oh interesting yeah and, he, and they believe that children up to the certain age are, are yeah. without sin completely and it was like that was my first question do you have kids <laughs> yeah. he's like no I was like have you been around little kids it's he's right. like yeah and I'm like you never have to teach him how to hit or say no, or mine, or <laughs> give it to <laughs> me, you know, like Tilly's in the, Tilly's in like the hyper
3: mind phase right now, just like everything is hers. And you're like, we just lovingly refer to her as jerk baby, <laughs> right now she's in jerk baby mode. Yeah. Like mine, mine, her sister, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who probably deserved to be smacked.
4: But.
3: <laughs> but you
2: don't have to teach that. It's you just in mean, here. You know. No. Yeah. You're like, where did you get that come from? Yeah. Oh, that's right.
3: Yeah, yeah. that's right. That was that was built in. That was a yeah.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, even even Christians though in some circles have the age of accountability, which yeah. I, my dad, my dad
3: did. I never found that in there. I've yeah wondered. Yeah. But I think that that I think that that's where like to talk about next week, where you're going to start seeing the more the bigger split stuff. I think yeah. with um, I think with. Uh, a heavier leaning toward Armenian theology, you have to have an age of accountability. Mm-hmm. Because it's to make choice, it fair, you know,
0: it's your choice, right? And right,
3: right. right. And so at that point, it's like, okay, so at what point am I making the choice? And so, and and what point are the choices that I'm making my actual choices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like not just parodying your parents, yeah, yeah, not so yours, yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's some. There's some stuff, uh, the, the basic, I guess, uh, when I started fearing for my own salvation was when I was turned 13, because that's when I was told that I would be accountable. <laughs> so is it, right? I'm, glad, I'm glad I made it past 13 to discover that actually,
4: no, huh. I, was, I was held accountable the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because in, in Mormonism, um, age of accountability is eight, and eight. Uh-huh. they are baptized at eight, mm. and then that is when they're held accountable mm.
0: for sin. Is he so in Catholic seven so. with confirmation? Oh, no, Catholic, Catholic, oh, oh. Like, confirmation, I thought, was like the... the now you're
3: accountable. For now it.
0: you're accountable, uh, whereas before...
3: Well, they had the taint of original sin wiped off through the initial baptism of the infant. Right, uh, right <laughs> I because yeah because so. so. no they, that that's that's partly no. why you in uh, you infant baptize right is because you <clears throat> baptism is useful for the remission of sin and so as a work that is the vehicle for grace you would get you would baptize the infant um, so that way you could remove that taint of original sin yeah so you know
0: but yeah, yeah no, I do I, don't recall I didn't remission. know that and I, I, could, I could easily be wrong on that I just thought that the confirmation was like the induction into the church kind of, kind of the way Protestants see baptism as like your entrance into the church mm-hmm. you know we, we see the visible church as those who have been baptized and who are partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, whereas the, the Catholic church sees those who have been confirmed Catholic yes. as being the visible church mm-hmm. Lutherans might also share that same <laughs> <laughs> yes I was just
3: thinking Luther, Lutherans have a confirmation as well
0: right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.